Welcome to A Bigger Life, where you can break through the distractions, stop, listen, and speak to God in prayer. I'm Dave Cover. I want to help you use the Bible as your conversation with God so you can live a bigger life. some sense, we could start every day with this question, who or what am I going to worship today? Because I am always worshiping. I'm always seeking something as the source of my meaning, my purpose, my joy. Everything is about worship because we're human beings created for worship. We're created to live in the glory of God and reflect the love of God. Something happened where our worship went wrong. It became about ourselves. It was focused on ourselves. It was focused, therefore, on dehumanizing our worship by worshiping created things instead of the creator. And so when we are coming to this podcast, one of the things we're trying to do, wanting to do, is have right worship, to focus our worship on God as the I am, on God as the source of life, the source of all that exists, the giver of life, and the one who is present with us right now in who he really is. Remember, Jesus said in John chapter 4, verses 23 through 24, that the, the whole point of Christ's coming, one of the ways you could sum it up, is that he is returning right worship to the earth and right worship to humanity and reestablishing the dignity and glory of what it means to be truly in the image of God by being transformed into the image of Christ through his death and resurrection. So Jesus said, a time is coming when those who worship God will worship him in spirit and truth. And part of worshiping God in spirit and truth is having this sense of his rule, his kingship, his reign, and his holiness. And that's what we see when we come to Psalm 99. We see the emphasis on God reigning over all his creation And we see the emphasis repeated three times that God is holy. The very essence of who he is, is holy. And that has everything to do with our right worship of God. We can't worship God in spirit and truth without emphasizing the fact that he is holy. Now, right now, when I said that word holy, maybe something happened inside of you. I think we have this internal response to the word holy that is kind of a come here, get away response. We, we are drawn to God's holiness in the sense of his radiance, his godness, his uniqueness as the creator, the only one who stands outside of all creation because he is forever the I am. He created everything that exists. And in the sense of God's holiness, his splendor, his majesty, his glory, his beauty, but his his uniqueness as God. There's obviously everything inside of us as how we were created is drawn to that. And yet because of our idolatry, because of our false worship being seated within our very nature ever since humanity sinned against God, we have this getaway aspect to the idea that God is holy. In some sense, it's a turnoff to us because we know that we're not. And immediately we sense this feeling of separation. But Psalm 99 reminds us that worshiping God 
is a kind of holy fear that brings a kind of holy joy. There's a joy that comes into the heart of those who have the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, the very Spirit of God, we call him the Holy Spirit. We sometimes forget the word holy is describing the very essence of the Spirit. Those who worship God will worship him in spirit and truth. The Holy Spirit is the very essence of how we worship God in spirit and truth. So we can't worship God without emphasizing his holiness. And I think that you'll experience, at least what I've experienced over the years, that the more we see God as holy and the more that captivates our heart, there's a kind of joy that comes. We get through the turnoff and to the other side where there's joy. I remember one time I preached a sermon years ago, and it was a sermon that particularly emphasized the holiness of God. It was one of these sermons, it was heavy, and it really did have this sense of fear of the holiness of God. I remember one of the drummers in our worship team came up to me after the sermon, and he had this humble smile on his face. And he said, it's weird how when you really have this sense of the fear of God's holiness, it brings a kind of joy. And he's exactly right. And I think that's what I found over the years. And I think that's what we experience when we come to God through his word in spirit and truth in Psalms like Psalm 99. Remember the very first prayer request when Jesus was teaching us how to pray. The very first thing we're to ask God to do is hallowed be your name. Now we don't really know what the word hallowed means because we don't use it in everyday English. That's unfortunate because we're missing the meaning of what we're praying. But it's really just verbalize it's, it's, it's taking the word holy and making it a verb. That verb sometimes looks like the word sanctified, but that's even a word we don't quite understand. To make holy, to see as holy, to holify, that's not a word, but that's kind of what that prayer request is saying, that your name would be holy, that I would bear your name in a holy way, that I would see your name in holiness, that your name would be reflected in my life more and more as holy, that your name would be glorified and exalted as holy high and lifted up as holy in my heart, in my mind, and through my life. It's interesting that that's the very first thing, according to Jesus, that we're supposed to pray when we come before God. Again, it emphasizes that worship is the very essence of prayer, and we bring our petitions as part of our worship. And the very first thing we're to pray for in our worship is the increasing sense of God's holiness in our heart and in our mind and in our life. That's how we live a vertically anchored life on God's absolute reign and holiness, that his holiness is is like putting on a pair of corrective glasses for the very first time. If you don't wear glasses, you don't know what I mean, but I remember the very first time I'm nearsighted, so I can see things close up without glasses just great. Right now, I'm doing this podcast, looking at my Bible, and I have my glasses off, and that's how I see the words. But when I want to see far away, I've got to put glasses on to to help me see far away. And the very first time I put glasses on, 
I remember seeing the leaves of trees for the first time in a long time. I didn't know how much I was missing until I put these corrective glasses on. And I think when we focus on God's holiness and the the fact that God rules in his holiness, the very essence of who he is, is holy. It's like putting on a pair of glasses for the first time and we see reality in a more brilliant way, clarifying way, truer way. We see our lives differently. Our motivations all of a sudden take on an enabling that makes us see sin for the the joke that it is, the little rat in the corner that it really is trying to pretend it's something big. And we see God for who he truly is. And he becomes more magnified in our desires and our wants and our affections and our loves. And so Psalm 99 verse 1 tells us the very first and primary reality is that word Yahweh, the Hebrew word for he is, going upon the name of God when God says his name is he is. Tell them he is sent you. I am is what he said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. There's such a mysterious aspect of what that means. I am the I am. Tell them he is sent you. So the very first verse in this psalm is God's name, Yahweh. He is, reigns. Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the carabim. Let the earth quake. Now this is trying to use poetry to incite our emotions through our imagination, to use words to help us see God in a greater way through our imagination, through the eyes of our heart. We meditate on this word, this verse, these words, and we see that God is the I am. That's his very name. That's his very essence. And he always rules and everywhere he rules. Let all people tremble, not because he is evil, but because of his righteousness and holiness and his power and his glory and his beauty. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 120, My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. There's a real sense here that the fear, this trembling before the Lord, is more than just awe. It's more than just respect or, or, or reverence. It's, it's that. But it's, it's this sense of true fear. My flesh trembles for fear of you. Let the peoples tremble. There's a sense, not again, of because God is evil, but because he's righteous and because he's holy and because he is unbelievably greater than anything our heart could imagine. We know from the biblical story that if we saw God as he truly is, we would be incinerated right now in our sin. We couldn't, we couldn't look on him without being destroyed. That's what God said to Moses. That's what the Bible teaches elsewhere. There's a sense in which as God truly is, the more we see him in the eyes of our heart, the more we would tremble. Not in a hide, get away, but in this sense of fear that has this draw to it. It draws us near in reverence and awe and trembling. And one of the things it tells us that should bring a sense of fear, and we, again, we don't, we don't have this in our worldview, so it doesn't necessarily bring fear like it did the first Israelites who wrote this, read this, praised through this psalm. It says, He sits enthroned upon the carabim. Those are these angelic uh, spiritual beings 
angelic isn't even right the right word they're spiritual beings that that are somehow so powerful they 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 sit at the throne of god and they oversee in some sense creation we're given glimpses of these beings in the biblical story they are these spiritual beings that guard the very presence of God. When Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, it says Cherubim stood guard at the entrance. Genesis two or Genesis three twenty four, it says he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flashing sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now that's poetry in some way. It's describing things beyond the description because that description is the best we can read to understand something that's probably not understandable to us. But these cherubim are appearing in various places throughout the Bible, and they were represented on the Ark of the Covenant, this Ark that was the presence of God among the Israelites. And the cherubim stood on the Ark, on top the Ark made of gold, standing guard over the most holy place. And that was a, a physical representation of some heavenly pattern. So verse 3, let them praise your great and awesome name. Again, we're the emphasis on God's name, the I am. Let them praise your great and awesome name that brings trembling, that the cherubim stand guard. You are the Lord who reigns in verse 1. Let them praise your great and awesome name, holy is he. There is a sense in which only God, the I am, is holy. And there's another sense in which those around him are holy as well. Others can be holy. In its most focused usage, the idea of holy is uniquely associated with God in the Bible. And so we read in two places in the Bible. There's that passage in Isaiah. When Isaiah sees God, he has a vision of seeing God, and it, and it repeats, he says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty in Isaiah 6.3. And that's repeated by these angelic beings, maybe the cherubim uh, in Revelation 4.8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The way the Bible emphasizes something is through repetition. And holy is the only description of God that is repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy. That is the greatest word, the greatest primary emphasis of who God is, is that he is holy. Saying God is holy, holy, holy is like saying God is uniquely God or God alone is God. The word holy becomes almost an adjective for God. Holy is he. It's like a, another word for God. He is holy. He has no rivals. There is no threat to God that exists. He is in his own category. So 1 Samuel 2, 2 says, There is no one holy like Yahweh. There is no one besides you. The Bible calls God the Holy One over 50 times and calls the Spirit of God the Holy Spirit over and over, over 90 times in the Bible. The very essence of, again, like I said before, the very essence of what we call the Spirit of God is the Holy Spirit. The very essence of who God is, is that He is holy. 
So Revelation 15.4 says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. So Isaiah in chapter 57, verse 15 says, For thus says the Holy One who is high and lifted up. And I think that's another way of saying the word holy, high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Isn't that an awesome phrase? Who inhabits eternity. That's the idea of the I am. He inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Now, his name is Yahweh, but another way of saying it in a poetic way is his name is holy. So God refers to spiritual beings that are, that are part of his servants as his holy ones. In Psalm 89, verses 5 through 7, we saw that, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. It's another name for his angelic beings. And Jesus calls them in Mark eight thirty eight his holy angels. When the Son of Man comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And so we could say the story, the bigger story, the story of the Bible is from one perspective, we could say about how God is working to restore to an even greater degree the holiness back to this creation again that was forfeited when Adam and Eve decided to be their own God. God is restoring this earth. He is restoring humanity to the derivative holiness of what it means to be in the image of God and to derive our holiness from being in relationship with the Holy One. And this earth would return to its beauty and glory of God's holiness as humanity in holiness reigns over the earth. So Jesus alone is the human that's called holy and true in Revelation 3.7 and Revelation 6.10. Jesus is the one who comes as holy, both because he is God, he is the I am, as we saw in our past episodes recently, but also as he is the human being that is the true holy human being. So remember the angel Gabriel announced to Mary in Luke one thirty five, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. He is the Holy One. A demon recognized Jesus in Luke 4.34 and said that Jesus was the Holy One of God. Peter called Jesus the Holy One of God in John 6.69. Remember we saw that recently in a couple episodes ago. When he said to Jesus, when all the disciples left and Jesus says, you don't want to go too, do you? And Jesus says, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life, for we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter referred to Jesus as the Holy and Righteous One when he was speaking in Acts chapter 3, verse 14. Hebrews 2.11 says that Jesus is the Holy One and the One who makes his people holy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that Jesus is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. His perfect life and his death and his resurrection satisfied God's holiness against sin and against sinners. 
And so Hebrews 10.10 says, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. We have been made holy in some real sense, in some legal sense before God. That's how God sees us. And I think that's because God sees us now as the glory we will be in the future in our resurrection. The church is described in Ephesians 2.21 as the holy temple in the Lord that God fills in a mysterious way by his holy spirit. And he says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 3.17 for God's temple. He's talking about the church. God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And he's talking specifically in chapter 3 about the church. He'll say that we are a holy temple in chapter 6. Our very body is God's holy temple because he indwells us. So Christians are described as a holy priesthood in the New Testament, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And so that's what the word sanctify means in the New Testament. It's that verb that means to make holy. Sanctification is this process that God is making us holy. But we are also told in the New Testament that he has already sanctified us. So we are being sanctified, we're being made holy, and he has already made us holy. And so the New Testament letters present the three tenses of being made holy, of sanctification, past, present, and future. So a Christian can say, I am sanctified. I am made holy. I am being sanctified. I'm being made holy in my experiential life, and I will be sanctified. I will be made holy at the resurrection, fully sanctified, fully holy without sin. That's what the Bible talks about, like in Romans 8.30, about our glorification. So when the Bible refers to Christians as holy or sanctified, it usually refers not to this process of being made holy, but to a definitive holiness that we have now. So in that sense, that's why Paul always addresses his letters to the saints who are in Ephesus or who are in Rome. We are people who have been made holy. That's what the word saint means. Every Christian is holy. Every Christian is sanctified. So when Paul opens his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1-2, he says, to, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. So we're made holy and we're called to be his holy people. They were already sanctified, even though they were failing to be holy in lots of areas that he addresses in his epistle. Holiness is this goal of our lives. It's the story that our lives are in. Holiness is the essence of who God is. He is holy. And holiness is the essence of who we are in Christ. He has made us holy. We are holy in him. And so Paul prayed in 1 Thessalonians 3.13, May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones, his holy angels. A day is coming when we as those in Christ will be will fully become what we already are legally, positionally, futurely applied to us now. And so the Old Testament anticipates the time when all of God's people will be called God's holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, it says in Isaiah 62:12. 
Paul says in Ephesians 1.4 that before God even created the world, he chose his people in Christ to be holy and blameless in his sight. Paul says in Ephesians 5.27 that Christ might that Christ might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what we are becoming as a people, as a temple, as a body of Christ, holy and without blemish. We're told in several places in the Old Testament that God's people will, quote, worship the Lord, worship Yahweh in the splendor of his holiness. We saw that just recently in Psalm 96, verse 9. Worship the Lord, worship the I am in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. And so we're told in Revelation 4, 8, that these spiritual beings that are before the throne of God, coming back full circle now, these spiritual beings, these cherubim and other spiritual beings before the very throne of God are saying, it says they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This this mysterious time sequence that God is always the I am. He was, he is, he is to come. He is holy. His very essence as the I am is holy. That's why Jesus, the very first thing he wants us to ask for, hallowed be your name, that your name would be seen as more and more holy in my mind, in my heart, through my life, that I would bear your name in holiness, that I would become more and more in my experience the holiness that I am made already in Christ. This future resurrected glory and holiness would become more and more this transforming glory that is being to, from one degree to another, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another, one degree of holiness to another. This is what our life is all about. This is why God is doing everything he is doing in our lives. And this is the story that our life is in. So verse 5 says, exalt the Lord, exalt the I am, our God, worship at his footstool. Holy is he. This sense, using our imagination of coming to the very feet of God. Now, that footstool is a metaphor, poetic image of the Ark of the Covenant, and therefore it kind of became a euphemism for the very temple of God, that that would be the footstool of God on earth. And it becomes a, a, a poetic imagination that we're coming before the very presence of God and we're falling face first worshiping at his feet because holy is he exalt the i am in our hearts we exalt this is what worship is we exalt in our hearts we lift him high and lift it up in our mind and heart we're we're meditating on his holiness we're meditating on his splendor we're meditating on the fact that he reigns over all his creation forever and ever and the more we see him as the god who reigns and the more we see him as the god who reigns in his holiness that he is at his very essence holy the more we tremble with this sense of awe and the more we see sin as its stupidity and weakling that it is there's nothing 
anything that rivals God in his holiness, in his glory. And we want to live for that God. We want to worship that God for holy is he. We want to lift our eyes and see with these corrective glasses clearer and clearer the holiness of God, the reign of God, and anchor our lives vertically in a way that brings this vertical joy and gladness and splendor and glory to our lives, that we would live these lives in this bigger story, not with our heads faced down, but with our eyes lifted up to see God is holy, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the I Am. And so we exalt him in our hearts. That's what worship is. We're exalting him. We're praising him with our mouth and in our meditation. We're ruminating on these phrases, these phrases that we're reading. Let them praise your great and awesome name. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He is enthroned upon the carabim. Holy is he. Exalt the I am. Our God, the forever God, is our God forever. We have no idea what that means. It's such an amazing truth. The God who is forever is our God forever, our belonging forever, our protection forever, our God who brings us in to his presence forever, where there is fullness of joy, Jesus says, where there is true shalom and flourishing and gladness and rejoicing. There is no evil there. There is no anxiety there. There is no sin and death and disease and separation and corruption. And even now we exalt Yahweh with unresurrected bodies because we are risen in our position in Christ, Paul says, already risen in Christ because he has already risen and we are in Christ. And so we exalt now in this timeline of who was and is and is to come. We are in this timeline right now, but who we really are is based upon what is to come, our resurrection, because we are in Christ and he is the forever God who is our God forever. And so we exalt him, lift up our eyes, and we meditate on him high and lift it up and holy, 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 worshiping him in the Holy Spirit, and in truth. So verse eight, and this is the verse that solves the problem. You know, we have this come here, get away because we, the getaway part knows that we are sinful and God is holy. This is the verse that solves the problem of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Verse eight, O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. And that's a strange verse a forgiving God, and yet you avenge their wrongdoings. Well, is he forgiving or not? But remember back in Exodus 34, when God was telling Moses the very essence of his glory, he proclaimed Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord. That's repeated twice. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So that's strange again. Is he forgiving or not? If he forgives the guilty, if he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, 
then how is it that he does not leave the guilty unpunished? It's a riddle in the very first pages of the Bible. And I'm not sure anybody quite understood it until Christ came. And we see that when Christ came and he fulfilled God's law and he died to break through the other side of death, he died to take our sins upon himself and he rose from the dead, it all started to make sense. So that the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified, were made righteous freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now that all starts to make sense. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. He took our sins upon himself, in other words, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this, listen to this, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So here's what he's saying. He said, Christ has come to take our sins upon himself. And so in that sense, he has become the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. And yet because Christ had to die for our sins, he also shows the righteousness of God, the justice of God. And in that sense, he is forgiving us of our wickedness and rebellion, and yet he at the same time is punishing sin. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished, but he puts it on the cross of Christ. So the very essence of who God is and his character, God says in Exodus 34, is that he is gracious and a forgiving God. And yet the very essence of who he is is that he does not leave any sin unpunished. And both are true uniquely in Christ, only in Christ. This is why God had to become human so that he could become the perfect human being and live the perfect life before God and give us his righteousness and take upon himself our sin and so that he can be forgiving of our sin and yet our sin was punished on the cross. He did not leave any sin unpunished. This is an amazing thing. Even in this verse, I'm sure, the the meaning of this was beyond the author's knowledge. Our God, the Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings, that that ultimately became a prophecy in some sense of what would be fulfilled and complete. It's saying this in the past tense because I think it's it's almost like a prophecy of the future in the past tense after Christ has come. And so verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. There's the third time. He is holy, holy, holy. For the Lord our God is holy. And so we exalt you, Yahweh. We exalt you in our heart. We lift you up. You are the I am, and you are the forever God who is our God forever. You are the forever God who is my God forever. This incredible grace that you are a forgiving God. And yet you do not leave my sin unpunished, but you have taken my sin and put it on the cross of Jesus and punished it there so that you could give me the righteousness of Jesus, so that you could forgive me of all my sins, so that you could make me holy in your presence and that I truly would be touched by you and that your holiness would come into me. And now in a progressive way, but ultimately in a resurrection, a glory that will be complete when I am raised from the dead 
dead on a renewed earth when heaven comes back to earth, holiness comes back to fill the earth. And yet even now I'm being transformed from one degree of holiness to the next, one degree of glory to the next. And so I exalt you. I lift you up, Yahweh. I lift you up, the I am. My God, forever, I exalt you in my heart. I lift my eyes to you. Hallowed be your name. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And I worship at your footstool. I worship at your holy mountain. In my imagination, even now, I bow at your feet and I worship you because you are holiness. You are holiness itself. You are holy. And I trust tremble before you in awe and in fear. I tremble before you because you are righteous and you are just and you are holiness and yet you are a forgiving God to me. You are my God forever for the Lord our God is holy, 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 but yet you are my God forever. You have committed yourself to be my God forever. You are Yahweh. You are the source of all that exists. You are existence itself, who was and is and is to come. There is never a time when you are not. You are always in the present tense. You are always the I am in my life, always present with me, always with me, always filling my life with your glory, O Lord our God, exalt the Lord our God, for the Lord our God is holy. And so I worship you at your footstool. I worship you at your holy mountain. I praise your great and awesome name, the I Am. I praise your name. I exalt in your name. Holy is he. I exalt the Lord my God. I worship at your footstool. Holy is he. And I repeat these things because this psalm repeats these things. And it's by repeating these things that I meditate on these truths, these truths that you have graciously given to me. The Lord Yahweh reigns, and I want to tremble before you. Even the cherubim tremble before you. And I praise your great and awesome name. Holy are you. You are holy. And I exalt you. You are holy. And I worship you. You are holy. Hallowed be your name forever and ever in me. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to A Bigger Life, a podcast of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and give it a rating so people can find this content more easily or consider texting it to a friend or posting it on social media. Thanks for listening.